Welcome to MedLit Review. I'm Deepa. And I'm Brian. Today we'll be looking at a paper titled, Facelifting in Bald Male Patients, New Trends and Specific Needs. So this paper has a lot to do with plastic surgery, which is an up-and-coming field in medicine, and it really emphasizes the importance of attention to detail, and they're one of the specialties that works all around the body, and they're very, very cool. Yeah, so we a lot of times think of plastic surgeons as cosmetic surgeons, and today we're actually going to be looking at one of those. Uh, but they also do a lot of reconstructive work, and they really work all over the body, and that's something that I think is really cool about the right. specialty. So the abstract for this paper is broken into a few different sections. So they start off with the background talking about how the bald patient presents um, a unique challenge by the fact that they can't hide the scars in their um, hair. The authors then go into the methods. The sample for this experiment was 68 bald men who were facelift patients. So all of these patients underwent this innovative technique added to handle the excess skin after their procedure. And so to gauge the results, they used the face cue questionnaire, which was sent out to all the patients. And it basically asked them to rank their satisfaction with the procedure. And they, they quantified those responses to find averages and report those. And that was the subjective evaluation. And there was also an objective evaluation where they had pre- and post-operative photographs, which were evaluated by a three-member jury, which consisted of a plastic surgeon, maxillofacial surgeon, and a makeup artist. Mm-hmm. And then they also did, um, they found their results to be that all patients showed a high degree of satisfaction to uh, some extent or another, and then also the fact that no patient expressed regret in getting their surgery. So now let's get into the paper. So it's a very common misconception that women are the only ones that get aesthetic surgery. And they indicate that of the total facelift patients in 2016, uh, 14.35% of them were men. And of the total neck lifts, 19.2% were for men. Yeah, fifth, that's, that's pretty high, I'd say. Right. Um, and so they also talk about how the work that they're doing is pretty novel. So looking at this bald male patient is um, something that they really haven't had too much experience with as more and more men are starting to get surgeries. Um, And especially at a later age, a lot of men happen to be bald. So this is relevant work as well. Um, And then they pretty much talk about how their new technique that they're trying um, is trying to redistribute a longer, lower skin flap edge along a shorter initial incision. And so basically they have methods to do it now but they're creating larger scars than what they would want in a male right. patient where if they're bald, you can just like see it right yeah. out of the blue. And because so, you know, generally hides behind the hairline. Right. Yeah. And if you're like getting aesthetic surgery, you know, just pulling up your skin, but making a big scar, you know, right. it's kind of like a trade off. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you don't want to do that. So looking at the patients in this experiment, they started off with 75 bald male patients between the ages of 42 and 73, average age 55. But when it comes to doing studies like this, it's really important to get rid of um, sample patients that may make the results eventually inconclusive. So for example, in this experiment, there were seven incomplete charts 
and therefore they couldn't use those patients in the study. So it whittled down the group from 75 to 68. In this group, they had post-operative follow-ups that were 12 to 24 months, average 18 months, and the means of recording the, the photographs after the procedure were all standardized, and yeah. Yeah, so they did all of that, um, trying to like initialize who they're going to look at, and then they figured out how they're going to evaluate these patients once mm-hmm. they get the surgery finished. So they had two ways of doing this. One was a subjective uh, method that they had talked about um, in the abstract, mm-hmm. where they do this face cue questionnaire, which you can see on the paper. It's a list of 16 questions. Um, and basically, it just goes over a bunch of different um, aspects related to the surgery and their age and a few other um, factors that they're interested in looking at. Um, and then this, this was just sent to them 12 months post-operatively. And then the objective method was three, um, three people on a jury consisting of a plastic surgeon, a maxillofacial surgeon, and a makeup artist. I thought that was a really cool group. Like the having a makeup artist is really unique, I think. Yeah, I feel like it was a really smart use of their resources because like that's one person that definitely looks at a lot of faces for their Yeah, their yeah, and like they would know like all the lines and angles and everything. Right. So it's like another view of the aesthetics there too. So I thought, yeah, I thought that was really cool. So they used that as their objective method. Basically, they showed these this group of three pictures of the post-operative and said, like, you know, can you see the scar in the different areas of the face? Or mm-hmm. can you see different things that yeah. might make it better or not? Yeah, and I think it was good they offered a preoperative and postoperative picture so they could really compare to make sure that, like, what they were observing was truly after the operation and wasn't something that was pre-existing there. Right, yeah. So I thought, I mean, that was really cool, especially because at the beginning I was like, how are they going to, like, measure this objectively? And I thought... Right. Like, it's cool that they have both the subjective and objective portions to it. So the first aspect of the surgery that they're going to perform for these men, the facelift, is the incision. Uh, Obviously, after they get the pre-surgery and anesthetics all uh, done. So what they have to do for this incision is basically plan a route that they're going to take. And so for this surgery, they need to go around the ear so that they can go down um, into the face to lift up the skin. And so um, in this uh, paper, they give a diagram of the different routes that they can take. And so they actually give three different um, variations that they used. And Let's so, figure one to follow along. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's, I thought it was really neat that they give you different options, and there's different reasons that they take each different one. So the main one that the authors used, they said, was the pre-tragal incision. So your tragus is that little like bump that kind of comes out of your like your cheek, it's that little bump like inside your ear, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is where they kind of are drawing this um, incision. It goes from above the ear and then across that tragus and then down to kind of around the ear. And so the pretragal incision, uh, you can see, is the most uh, like right across the tragus. Um, and this one is, you know, the one they preferred. Another one that they did was a uh, retrotragal incision. And the retrotragal incision was, as they said, preferred and consequently as uh, hair-bearing skin is moved over the tragal cartilage. Basically, that means if they are using this one, it goes farther into the tragus and they have to pull the skin up farther. And because of that, you still have some like hair follicles there um, where the skin is like moved up and you'd have to like 
kind of like laser remove the hair follicles there because you don't want hair growing like off your ear. That's weird. <laughs> so they did that um, for some of the patients. And then they also did um, a line for a pre-beard pre incision, excuse me. So this is if, if they have a beard there already and they're able to kind of hide some of the scarring in the beard uh, like area. So if they're lifting up and the scar can be hidden under hair that's already growing there. Um, so that was another possible option. So they had three and it was cool to see um, the reasons that they used all three different um, incisions to start this procedure. So the most dynamic and innovative part of the surgery technique was the way they approached the incision sites. Mm -hmm. So um, the next steps would be to do the deep dissection and to secure the flap. So essentially what they did was they extended the S the sub-SMAS dissection. So SMAS stands for superficial musculoepineurotic system, and you're probably going to hear that a lot for the rest of the paper. <laughs> yeah. So this dissection was extended bilaterally to the midline, but it was limited in the cheek to find the right amount of mobilization um, for this surgery. Right, yeah. And it's, it said it was in the, like, sub-facial plane, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, like, it's, like, right under the skin, right? I mean, it's, mm -hmm. like, basically they're just kind of, like, pushing down with forceps. They have a video later. It's actually yeah. really cool to watch. Um, and so they're basically just, like, digging down so that the skin, you know, is loose so that right. they can pull it. Exactly. And so after they do the dissection... It's important to stabilize, and so in order to do that, they have to secure the SMAS flap to solid structures, and so essentially the SMAS flap is used as suspender to lift all soft tissues, and the goal of this is to prevent unnatural flattening, which could affect the aesthetic of the finished product after the surgery and also avoid the formation of hypertrophic scars mm -hmm. in the preauricular region. Yeah, and I thought it was really cool how when they were talking about all of these procedures, they would go into um, a good amount of detail about even like things as, um, I don't know, as mundane as right. like retracting. Yeah. Like you would never think that that's a huge deal mm -hmm. in most other surgeries, but they're like, you need to keep it at this vertical angle or this right. vector to like make sure that mm -hmm. the skin isn't pulled too much. So that's something cool about mm -hmm. um, plastic surgery in general that they included here, which yeah. I thought was really cool. And honestly, I think that the authors themselves have done a really good job of including specific details so that people like us were neither <laughs> surgeons and not not yet med students even. yet <laughs> but i felt like it was pretty easy for us to follow along because they were just so detail oriented when they were crafting this paper yeah yeah definitely um yeah so an innovative part of this surgery um, was also the use of fibrin glue though it's been used in other surgeries before it was able to minimize um, hematomas and have a greater adaptability of the cutaneous flap in this case right so basically, they're preventing blood from building up or bleeding into the um, affected area and then also making sure that the skin is healing um, in a better, less scarring fashion. Right. Um, so they do that. They also talk about how they do some short skin incisions over the perpendicular uh, cutaneous flap. So that's basically cutting off the excess that they pulled up. And then after they have glued everything down and made sure that the margins are as perfect as they can be, then they finally sutured the wound closed, and that was the end of the surgery. 
So now let's go into the results. So as you know, there were subjective and objective aspects of the evaluation of the results of the surgery. So there was the patients assigning their scores, and then there was the expert jury assigning their scores. So I was really surprised at how similar the scores of the two groups were. And it was even more interesting that for the neck, the area under the chin, the lower face and jawline, and the cheeks, the jury actually assigned higher points than the patients themselves. And I was pretty surprised by that because you'd expect that the expert jury would be much more critical of the results. What the only section where the patients did assign higher points was for the nasolabial folds. Yeah. And so, I mean, like to me, that was a surprising fact too, because like, I don't know if you have something on your body, like usually you're going to kind of dismiss any like right uh, fact that it would be bad like if you get Mm -hmm. a bad tattoo you're not gonna say it's bad right so um i thought they would like over inflate their answers and make their score a lot higher yeah and when i saw that the only thing that came to my mind was maybe like they just looked at the site and they probably saw like older markings too and they were ready to distinguish that like those are pre-existing markings and not like from this like the surgery yeah that definitely could be so then they also go in um, after that um, specific section um, scoring, and they look at overall trends. And so they found a positive correlation between overall satisfaction and facial appearances and the quality of the scars. Um, so that was awesome. They saw that they were um, positively correlating these um, overall satisfaction rates. Um, and then they also found um, the satisfaction of their decision was very highly positively correlated with the facial appearance and the satisfaction with outcomes reaching as high as 88.9%. Um, so that's, that's pretty high, I would say. Um, and it was really cool how that uh, correlation between satisfaction of their decision um, basically told the surgeons that um, it is, it's basically implying that other people can't see that they got a facelift done. And I mean, that makes total sense because they show a bunch of pictures of the pre and post-op patients and I, I mean, I can't see the Yeah, scar. neither can <laughs> I. Like, honestly, like, and even after knowing that there are scars, I still... Right, yeah. Like, it just doesn't jump out. Yeah, like, like I was kind of expecting to see, like, some red marks or something right. like, oh, it doesn't really look like a scar. It looks kind of like maybe like a blemish, but no, mm-hmm. you can't really see anything. Yeah. So that was awesome. And then they also only reported that 2% of the cases um, report insufficient scar quality. Mm -hmm. So there are a couple instances where they don't appreciate the um, scarring, but still it is like likely that they're minimal compared to what they would have gotten with previous techniques. So they talk a little bit about some of their post-surgical complications that they had seen. Two of them had presented with hematomas 12 after. 12 hours after the surgery, so they had some blood in the area that was um, worked on, and so they had to be removed by microcannulation. They also had five cases where they had hypertrophic monolateral retroangular scars, uh, so basically that scarring that they didn't want to happen, and they had uh, two of them that got injections that were standard protocol for the procedure, and then three of them had to get um, tissue excised to have a better quality scar. So one of the major reasons why this paper had come about is because men are more and more um, interested in getting aesthetic plastic surgery. And so they talk about this a lot where this hasn't been a thing because people have this stigma about men getting plastic surgery, even though men are in the 
like, you know, limelight a lot. You know, there's right. like people in politics or even just in general wanting yourself to like look more youthful and right. that psychological aspect of it. It's becoming more and more, you know, socially acceptable mm-hmm. for men to get this done. Um, and so they talk about that a lot because this is what had brought on the, um, the reason that bald men are getting this more often. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was something that they had discussed. They also go into the fact that men are statistically more unhealthy than women. Um, there's a large body of literature, I'm sure you can <laughs> look um, to kind of confirm that. And basically, they're just saying that there's a lot of men that will come in that have larger, fattier necks, mm-hmm. and they have to kind of adjust their procedure and protocol based on that. That's kind of like more of a future route that they can start mm-hmm. um, applying this specific strategy to like larger, fattier necks that are okay. more complicated to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So as you know, we can't have a med lit review without looking at some criticisms. <laughs> so one that I noticed when I was going through the paper was when they were talking about the time span of this study, they looked at patients who had undergone facelifts between January of 2006 and January of 2016. Mm-hmm. So that's a 10-year gap. And the issue that I saw was that it's hard to tell if there were any medical innovations during this time or innovations in this particular type of surgery that might have also influenced the outcomes of the patients. And it's particularly hard to gauge in this specific example because they're building on an already existing procedure. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that makes total sense because, like, in the span of, like, 10 years, think about the amazing innovations that we have in medicine and how, like, that could influence this. Um, so yeah, but I mean, like, other than that, this paper was just so good that know, <laughs> it was right? hard to come up with something. So, um, it was great reviewing this paper and, um, yeah. All right. So this just about concludes this week's MedLit review. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much for bearing with my ill voice today. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as always, feel free to continue the discussion by emailing us at to medlit review that's to medlit review at gmail.com and please check out our socials we're on instagram at medlit review um thank you for joining us this is a really cool paper we hope you learned a lot and catch us in the next one thank you Bye.